How do we select our clients? Who do we choose to work with and who do we reject? Perhaps you know that situation. A client calls, you briefly talk about the topic and you already have a gut feeling you should not work with that person. Or differently, you offer the client an appointment during your working hours and the client says, I can't come then, I have to work then. I need an evening appointment because I not come during your working hours. What do you do? Welcome to episode 11 of Hypnotalk's Question and Answers. Today we are going to tackle the question, how do we select the clients we work with and who do we reject? My name is Axel Hombach. I'm a hypnotist and trainer for hypnosis and self-hypnosis in Cologne, Germany. I'm sitting here online with Dr. John Butler, the director of the HDI, the Hypnotherapy Training International in London. Hello, John. Hello, Axel. John, we already talked a little bit about this situation. How do we select our clients briefly before this interview? And we selected some key points, what we could take into account to select our clients. One of them is that you repeat or you stress and emphasize very often that you should only work with clients who are fully committed. How do you decide that a client is fully committed and how do you deal with that if you want to tell the client, well, we shouldn't work with that. What would be your advice from your decades of experience? Okay, Axel. Well, one broad general point to take into account is, and I think it's a very important one, it can easily get overlooked, is to check with the client and be sure in your mind that the issue that they're bringing, the real issue, because they don't always describe it very well, uh, they may have several issues, they may in some instances, really be testing you with a level of the problem or a more minor problem before they reveal their bigger issue that they really want help with. But let's check always at the beginning that this therapy is a suitable therapy for the issue the client has. In other words, that it's not a medical psychiatric issue or some other problem that they need the attention of other therapists for. Uh, you may be working in an adjunctive way if they have major physical illness and your work is helping them with pain management and so on. You will need, obviously, in your mind to be happy that they're taking responsible attitude towards their illness and that you're not being asked to do something that you feel is not appropriate or not really ethical. So I would start off always making sure that we're working within our scope of practice, our scope of competence. And that's based a lot on the training and experience that you've had. And so you make sure you avoid maybe the very difficult, extreme ones to start with of severe drug abuse, maybe very severe depression. Clients with, we talked very quickly earlier about clients with severe personality disorders, clients with psychotic conditions, for example, schizophrenia. And people who have very severe traumatic PTSD, there are a large number of conditions, of course, where your therapy could be adjunctive, but it would not be the primary treatment for that person. And so we need to make sure that the client is being treated properly. In severe drug addiction, for example, they would need proper medical support, a safe environment, so they're well protected and monitored. And for all of these decisions we make, of course, we need a very full 
solid, a real in-depth hypnotherapy training that's general and that will cover a large wide range of issues, including the ones that we need to know about but won't get involved with, unless we have additional specialist training. And so uh, you need that excellent training to start with. And then in that initial interview or even over the phone, and you're getting an in-depth understanding of why they're coming to you, what they're bringing with you, which is just the first layer. You're obviously going to go into that in more detail then. And you've got a good history of the problem. So I think that's the basic guidelines I've just been talking about must be done properly. And so those are key areas to look into. Then the next consideration is looking with your own very specific clinical evaluation regarding working with that particular individual. You've mentioned about issues of readiness for change. And let me just say to start with, of course, uh, I'll come to that in a minute. The therapeutic relationship starts off even from the first phone contact or internet contact you have with that person. And so you're engaging with them. So your personality engaging with their personality and seeing whether there is rapport, empathy, regard and all those key characteristics of the effective therapist we talk about that helps to build the therapeutic relationship and the therapeutic environment in which change can be worked on, worked towards, things can be experimented with as the client learns to put it into practice in their daily life, what you've taught them. So all that requires a good, solid therapeutic relationship. Now, let's say you might have antipathy towards the client or they towards you, which is it maybe a clash of values. There may be some cultural difficulties to manage, making it a bit more difficult to connect, to make a deep contact with that person in, in some instances. Sometimes it's just their language, their... A way of expressing themselves. So you have to build those bridges. There has to be empathy and there has to be revelation, which builds the bonds of the therapeutic relationship. And so it's not always easy to do those things. A good therapist can manage dealing with very different kind of clients, different, very different cultures, but being sensitive and aware to the fact that we may not always be as good at that as we might think. We may not always come across as well as we think. There's lots of research on that, that how the therapists think they're doing with the client is not how the client thinks they're doing with them. So to move then on to the issues of assessing the client, you know, are you ready to start working with them? Is there a commitment? Are they being sent because somebody else is pushing them there? And they may not reveal that to you. Oh, as, a, as an example, John, when someone calls in for smoking or weight loss and actually they didn't come of their own decision, but because their spouse told them, you have to stop smoking, you go there. Oh, absolutely. Or the doctor sent them. Okay. And I find out all of that at the beginning. You can even ask them very straight on saying it to the client more or less in this manner in this therapy we take people in to help them now get ready for change or or to be if they're already ready for change to be highly motivated towards their goals we need that coming from that person because they're essentially learning to help themselves we need that commitment we don't take people on who are just coming because somebody else wants them to come they want them to change but the client doesn't yet have that real commitment in their mind. 
So, I mean, you can say it sensitively or, and or, or more strongly, if necessary, depending on their responses. So the issues of readiness for change, I mean, in this short interview, I'm not going to into all the detail. These are issues we teach in our classes. And a good hypnotherapy course will have covered those in depth. And these include the obvious, giving up alibis, secondary gains of various kinds, and sometimes getting over various fears, fear of failure, fear of success. So we detect clients' readiness for change through their answers. So that's verbal, but also they're nonverbal statements. And if we don't really feel that the client is making that commitment, which is a very strong, serious commitment to change, and they sign that on their intake form. Gil Boyne always said, do not work with a client who is not making a solid psychic commitment. And of course, there's degrees, well, most things in life are on a continuum. There's degrees of readiness for change, of course. But therapists often make the mistake of assuming if he's coming through the door, he's paying money, paying a large fee, that means he's committed. Nothing could be further from the truth in some cases. So the therapist would walk into that trap, perhaps, if, they, if they're not aware of that danger. So perhaps the client is only using the hypnotist to prove they can't be cured or can't change. Absolutely. To avoid responsibility, to sabotage themselves, because that's a lot of what they do. Jung talked about several of these things that go on in the therapy session. This is a battle for who's in charge of the therapy in that first session. And for the general direction of the therapy then, if the therapist loses that battle, of course, there's no real therapeutic process going on. You said Jung, you mean Carl Jung. Carl Jung, yes, yeah. who was, of course, a famous psychiatrist, psychologist, and used a lot of hypnotherapy work in starting out. And in his career, he called it, of course, active imagination. When the word hypnosis was so unacceptable, they were using forms, elements of hypnosis for the work that they were doing. And so that getting people to take responsibility, to getting them away from their blame game of blaming their past, blaming others, blaming the last therapist, <laughs> all of the things that clients can do, which mean that they're not really facing up to their own responsibilities and taking control of their lives. So we are helping them do that. But without a substantial commitment in the first place, the therapist is wasting their time. The client is controlling the therapy and then will always be able to say things like it's not working or you didn't get me deep enough in trance or some other alibi, some other excuse really for what they're doing. So which is to sabotage and avoid change. Okay, from what you say, I would conclude that when you take on a client, the first thing is before the first session, you should personally talk to the client On the phone, so get yes. to, so that you get an idea about his willingness to change of his commitment. And the more obvious clues would be: is he coming of his own, or if someone is sending him, like the spouse or the doctor? And depending then if he accepts the offered appointments or if he tries to find other appointments that are more suitable to the client, but you are not offering to work during that time, for example, so that he tries already to manipulate the hypnotist into a certain direction to accommodate the client uh, so that he doesn't have to take so much commitment himself. 
So this, yes. I, I would understand these are the more obvious clues. Yes. And then there are the more subtle clues that you will only recognize when you have a certain experience already. Yes. And that's a very important point is at the beginning to iron out where you stand with the client, you know, in a, in a mutually respectful way, but they know that you're strong. They feel that assertiveness. It's, it's a bit like tough love in the sense you're saying, this is how I work. And if you start strong, you can always be more flexible as you go along. I often say if you start weak with the client and keep surrendering to their demands, their manipulations or self-sabotage, you're not helping the client. And of course, then when you try and strengthen in your approach, the client can feel that as a big rejection because you were so soft at the beginning. So I think being a therapist, the qualities you bring are potency, confrontiveness, empathy, regard, all of those Uh, major traits are all very, very important to have in your personality and to be aware of that, that the clients don't come, as Jung said, to change the clients. This is a general statement, of course, and some do come ready for change, but some are coming to avoid in a last ditch effort the responsibility for making change, for taking control over your life. So, as I say, Jung pointed that out a long time ago, and it's often not talked about in hypnotherapy courses because they're so superficial in the way they approach such matters. And that determines then the level of success they can have. We know that many of the people who do not know how to progress the therapy, they offer things like one-shot treatment. So then they don't follow up. They're afraid of commitment. The therapist doesn't know how to progress in dealing with the client's ongoing sabotage. So in other words, they may have a degree, a serious degree of commitment to therapy, but there's elements in the client's personality, uh, in their psyche at a deep level, that are sabotaging things. And programming is not enough. The therapist has to go into deeper analytical work. Now, I think what you said is very important. Some of this becomes obvious later. It won't be obvious at the very beginning, although this is where an experienced therapist If they've done very good interviewing, they have developed those listening observation skills and the elicitation, the right way to uncover important material from the client, which the client reveals verbally and non-verbally, they will detect, in most cases, where there is some deficiencies in commitment or absolutely no real commitment to change. And picking it up at an early stage means you save yourself a lot of trouble later on. So that's part of the issue. Bonding, forming relationships with the client, a healthy therapeutic relationship that gives hope, expectation. The therapist must be dynamic and positive, but very switched on to make sure that they are getting the client to move forward in taking responsibility. So we are empowering the client. This is a client-centered therapy. So it's a very powerful therapy, but it's a very complete therapy. Hypnotherapy is not some kind of magic wand nonsense that the public believe. And that's sometimes coming from the therapist, the least ethical, the least well-trained therapist. And they do our profession a lot of disservice because clients think, well, I didn't get that one-shot magic treatment when I went to the therapist. So hypnotherapy is not good. It's fraudulent. Or they're blaming the therapist because they've been led to believe they should have had that magic wand therapy. You mentioned the experience of the hypnotist. 
And I think that is also a very important point when it comes to deal with certain topics that the clients come with. For example, if a client comes and you detect already on the phone because you ask and they reveal it that they have a personality disorders or other disorders as for example they have bipolar disorder or other disorders like schizophrenia is that a reason from your point of view that you say well in this case you should not work with the client or would you say well you can still take them on but be very careful or are there medical reasons that you would say stay away from that well of course there are medical legal issues involved ethical issues of all kinds about i mentioned earlier about the scope of practice that this is not an area where you have specialist knowledge or training. If they needed medication, if they needed some hospitalization, a good therapist will make the good decisions about that at the beginning. And of course, if they have specialist training, so in other words, they're not just a hypnotist who has a few hypnotic techniques, which is not really a therapist, it's more of a, a technician at best. Well, you would avoid clients with schizophrenia, severe personality disorders, borderline personality disorder even. Now, with more training, you can work with people and do things that are appropriate. And that comes from your training, that you would use the tools that you have in a very appropriate and effective way. I mean, in our courses, I always tell students at the very beginning, under no circumstances, use standard hypnotic approaches with people with schizophrenia. Now, with later on, with a lot of training... There are elements of our skills for communication that can work with the client at different levels of their mind and promote confidence, relaxation and many things. However, it is appropriate and necessary that you would have further advanced training rather than a beginner's level of training in hypnotherapy and ideally specialist additional training in working with those people with, say, schizophrenia. And you know about group work, you know about how to deal with them individually. And so there's particular levels of training needed, Axel, for different issues. And the general rule is, when in doubt, don't. In other words, don't take the person on. This avoids problems and complications later on. I believe that you can stress, if in doubt, don't. You can't stress that enough. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I, yeah, and I believe also that with specialized training, you most probably don't mean having a seven-day course, then take on your first client and find out they have some kind of personality disorder or other severe disorders, and then write in a Facebook group and say, I have a client like this and that, how do I work with them? I strongly believe you don't mean that. Well, it's quite horrifying when you look at some of the questions being asked in groups that it reveals an awful lot of ignorance and a lot of, well, frankly, evidence that the person is out of their depth and struggling with sometimes a more severe condition than they realize. I mean, this is not entirely to blame the person who's making those comments on Facebook. I mean, they need further training. They've been misled in their training. And the dangers are now becoming apparent, or it should be becoming apparent to them, that they're out of the depth and they may do more harm than good. 
So while we don't want to be scared all the time that we are making the wrong decisions with clients, taking on the wrong clients, doing the wrong things with them, this is a serious matter. The concern for the client has to be uppermost in our mind, their protection, their well-being, and of course, how they behave towards others, because a client that's in a dangerous state may not only harm themselves and harm others. So we want to do the very best work for our clients, and that's where these things are covered, these issues we've been talking about, of assessing the client, of having the knowledge to make those decisions and distinctions in your mind, what is going on with this person, so you're practicing safely, ethically, and very effectively to help the clients, the right clients, the ones that are appropriate for your scope of practice and competence. And to put it a little bit more provocative, could you probably say that if you have the need to ask in a Facebook or social media group on how to work with a certain client, you're most probably not yet prepared to work with that client? Well, without being too cut and dried about it, I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. If you are asking those questions, you would need to ask yourself what some of the more really peculiar questions and I would say worrying questions. If the therapist is asking this question, well, what's stopping them knowing this answer for themselves? I mean, they're basic questions. I mean, there are some very good questions on Facebook groups, but there are some absolutely horrifying questions, to be frank, which would make me concerned and I think make any trainer and any competent therapist concerned about what and how that person what they're doing and how they're working with their clients with those kind of serious issues that they're revealing through the question that they're out of their depth in essence seriously out of their depth so work only with a client when you feel you're working on solid eyes absolutely as you know in a medical setting You may be a very experienced cardiologist, a consultant and so on, but you don't work with people with liver problems. You have general medical knowledge. You're not skilled. You're not, that's not your area of specialism. Not skilled sufficiently to deal with all of those problems. Only work on your turf. That's it. We also shortly talked about Dave Elman. Dave Elman was not convinced that smoking and alcohol problems are the best topics for hypnotherapy or hypnosis. What would be your opinion on that? How do you work with people that, with smokers? Well, we know that you work with smokers, but when you have a smoker or even alcoholic on the line and talk to them, how would you decide if you work with them or not? Okay, well, each is going to be an individual case and their level of help and my input into their therapy, which may involve them having to be in a clinic in the case of the severe alcoholic, obviously, because coming off of alcohol has to be done very carefully and monitored medically. There are all kinds of medical issues, can be very dangerous, even fatal. So my intervention will be on several levels, of course, depending on what's happened with them, the history of the problem and the emotional factors involved. So we may play an important role with them. But if you're working in a clinic, of course, it's very different if you're working on a once-a-week basis, seeing a client in that way. A very severe addict will need different kind of treatment in most cases. And they'll always need to make sure that they are safe in what they're doing as they detox and adjust to life without that crutch, that drug. Now, not just substituting one drug for another, you know, in 
self-prescribing. We're talking about street drugs, recreational drugs, so-called. So uh, smoking and alcohol, they're different issues, but they're all under the heading of addiction or dependency, whichever terms you want to use. And with smokers, just to say, Dave Ellman, who was an extraordinarily talented and experienced therapist, never made the claims that many hypnotherapists make for hypnosis and smoking. In other words, he felt that it had a role, but it was nothing like a magic wand, and it often would require, well, it would always require a very severe, serious, deep commitment from the client to give up smoking, and then hypnosis would be a part of the process, but it wasn't simply that they carried out your suggestion, stop smoking, and that was that. This, this simplistic model has existed for a long time and is promoted in the worst kinds of trainings, and it's very misleading. Those smokers typically go back smoking after a while with that kind of approach, and um, if they do give up, it's primarily placebo, their own commitment, and so on, and with a little bit of help from the hypnotic experience and suggestion. So, in other words, the clients that are really struggling with dependency on tobacco, simple hypnotic work on its at the most basic level is only having a minimal input into changing and helping them become free of tobacco. And I've worked with thousands of smokers and been very successful over the years. Um, I've demonstrated on television how it works, but I'm very aware of the limitations of simply giving suggestions in the vague hope that the person is committed and motivated. I think much of the change that comes from a good therapist working with smokers is done through the initial stages of the communication, the interview. That gets them highly committed and motivated to it if it's done well. And if they're not motivated and committed, well then send them away and tell them to come back when they're ready on their own behalf, not because their wife or the doctor only is telling them. Come back when they're ready. And when you do that very good in-depth motivational exploration work, finding out what are emotional factors in there that you will then weave into your programming. You will be doing a very powerful form of programming with them and then you follow up and do more work with them as necessary. So again, not some childish magic wand promise that you're giving them. When you talk to the client and he reveals that he is taking psychopharmaceutical medication, light or stronger medicals, how would you react then? Depending on what, would you take them on or send them away? Well, it depends which medications. Now, if the medication is for a psychotic condition and you're not experienced in dealing with those and haven't got much understanding, of course, it's not appropriate to have them as a client. The best you could be doing for them is just helping them relax and become more a bit more effective in dealing with their lives and so on, then maybe you would want to do that with them. So that could be useful for some clients, of course, but that's not offering a full therapy to them for what they need. In other words, they'll need their medication, they'll need monitoring with that, and ongoing therapy with somebody who is good with that therapy, who's trained in that area, and that will help them become stabilized getting better and better at coping with life, achieving certain goals, and the client can become very self-sufficient then, but they need a good therapist who is experienced and, well, 
knowledgeable and trained in that area of working with psychotic conditions. So as long as you are a beginner or even intermediate, you would probably advise not to take those clients. Yes, avoid it until you have training and you are then ready to work with them in a proper therapeutic manner. Not some vague, oh, I hope I can help him. And certainly putting them in hypnosis and giving them suggestions in the standard way is very inappropriate as a therapist for these people. And it certainly can make matters much worse because you're not dealing with issues. You're stirring them up and you're putting pressure on their mind and on their brain by the work that you're doing, which is not something they handle well and uh, can make them a lot worse. That's my opinion anyway, and I've seen many cases over the years of things going wrong with hypnotists trying to hypnotize people with psychotic conditions and essentially making them quite a lot worse. I believe that with proper training and experience, you mean that the hypnotist not only has learned the techniques themselves in a course, be it two days, be it seven days, be it more days, but they also have proper training in therapeutical work itself, how to be a therapist and how to deal from a therapeutic point of view with a client without regard to certain techniques. Well, absolutely. In understanding psychosis, you need to know some information about the brain, what's happening with it, what we believe is going on biochemically and what their medication needs are. You're not prescribing it, so again, you stay within your scope of practice. But you're aware of those issues and of those areas. And then you're aware of the ways those conditions affect people's lives socially, emotionally, the problems and complications unique to their situation, of course, but that it, many people who have psychosis struggle with in life. So you're very sensitive, aware knowledgeable about that and how to make the best interventions so it's a full therapeutic approach as you say you're certainly not just a technician or a hypnotechnician or the worst example of those is the hypnotechnician who's promising the magic wand and wonderful miracle cures often on one session so those are very harmful to the public and our profession so not a training that is done within a week or so absolutely Now, when you talk to a client, be it on the phone or maybe he's already in the session with you and you feel that the client triggers something in yourself and you feel you're responding emotionally that maybe there come even tears, would you say that is a good basis for the work with a client? Well, therapists have to work on themselves a great deal. It's something I've always stressed over the years, that therapists have therapy, which means they work on themselves, being their own therapist, and also have input from other people. In other words, they have another therapist who works with them, so they understand what it feels like being a client. They understand what it feels like to open up on your issues and start to work on them and get help in clearing our own baggage so we're not projecting that in onto the client because clients will make projections onto you. There's what in the traditional psychological literature about transference and counter-transference, which I'm certainly not going to go into my opinions at the moment on it because I think there's some great confusion and even harmful things that have been believed in the past, but that nonetheless 
the phenomenon exists and clients can stir things up in us or may project onto us very negative things, which doesn't happen very often, but it can come up. They may project that onto any therapist they work with. And so being able to handle that without being overwhelmed or just angry or undermined by it requires the therapist to have done work on themselves, cleared up some of their, as I call it, mummy-daddy baggage. You see way too many hypnotherapists who are grossly obese or have major alcohol problems and so on. And clearly, there's work there they need to do. We're not condemning them that they may have talent and abilities as a therapist, but there's areas where they have a need to work. And working on those, working on our issues will always bring us to be a much better therapist. And so I feel that needs to be understood and incorporated into training courses that the train is self-reflective when we demonstrate, when I demonstrate hypnotic procedures and including regression and a full therapy session with somebody in the classroom, it often stirs things up with people watching and they say to me, that really affected me. And I say, good, because that's part of your training now. And you know, you need to work on that yourself. So I believe all therapists should have some, well, during their training, should have some work done on their own issues. With that said, when you consider a hypnotist and that the hypnotist already feels a very strong emotional response and he, so to speak, takes side with a client because the client has had such a bad childhood and he or she lived through so much opposition and there were so many people against them and the hypnotist realizes how they side with the client would you say that that is a good position to work with a client or should then the hypnotist be so self-reflected or honest to him or herself that they say, well, I'm probably before I have dealt with this issue of my own, I shouldn't work with a client? Well, empathy for the client doesn't involve becoming swept up in their drama because then you can't be objective, you can't be effective in various ways. Your emotions are being stirred up in a way that is now getting adding complications. And so the therapeutic relationship may not be therapeutic anymore. So we all have our strengths and weaknesses as therapists and as people generally. And clients can have very damaged past in their history where terrible abuse took place and of course we as human beings are affected by that when we hear it and if you don't have emotional connection with the client I don't think you should be a therapist you you just don't have that interest in people and um, that's another story of course but right now how you deal emotionally with what's happening within the client and within yourself is very important so that you are not losing perspective. If a client is just manipulating the therapist, wants a lot of sympathy, and that's not empathy, as I say. I mean, it depends how you define the word sympathy, but if you know what I mean, somebody who's a sympathy seeker or sucking sympathy, as we call it, they will manipulate the therapist to do that. And if the therapist is not aware, they won't be able to break that. They'll get sucked into it. So the therapist has to be able to steer the therapy in productive directions, and it's an interactive process between therapist and client, but there are struggles, as I said earlier, struggle for who's controlling the therapy, and therapists can be exposed to anger and hostility from clients, as well as with those who are looking for a lot of 
support for what they do even though it's destructive they want to blame others and they're going to manipulate the therapist into giving them all of that sympathy and so on and maybe want them to take part emotionally in some drama that's going on in their lives their marriage and so on and so the therapist they aren't strong enough haven't worked on themselves enough and haven't had a good training can easily fall into the manipulations of the client these manipulations Is there some relationship to attention-seeking or narcissistic behavior? Oh, absolutely. The client who has severe tendencies towards attention-seeking, which of course comes from not feeling lovable enough, not unconditional love, they are looking for that kind of uh, attention, approval-seeking and so on. And that's one issue. Then there can be others within the client, other forces within them from their past that they're carrying and projecting on into the therapy situation, which all has to be handled well by the therapist. So as soon as the therapist or the hypnotist realizes that they are no longer in control of the sessions and they cannot get it back, they should consider stop it. Oh, yes. If there comes a point and it, it needs to be done in the right way so the client just doesn't feel rejected. If the therapist is really feeling, I can't handle this any better, I'm not doing very well, I can't handle any better, to seriously look at, of course, they have supervision, they have other therapists to speak to, so they need to do their homework on it. But if there is that feeling then, finally, that this is outside of my depth and outside my competence scope, I'm going to refer them on appropriately to another therapist or therapy. So, John, because our time has already very much progressed and we are coming to an end, could you summarize in a few bullet points what you would suggest how to select your clients and who to work with and who to reject? Well, very briefly, key points are have a really good training in the first place. It's very hard to uh, function as a therapist putting bits and pieces together when the foundation of a good, solid, in-depth hypnotherapy training has not been achieved. Secondly, working with clients to have very good interview and assessment skills, have been trained well in observation and listening skills, elicitation skills, all of that that allows you to assess the client very well and being aware of issues then of readiness for change, the level of commitment that's there, not falling into the trap of working without commitment. These, Axel, are easy to say but not always easy to do with some difficult clients. But I think if they are done very well by the therapist who has sufficient knowledge and about scope of practice and self-awareness and has worked on their own issues as well, I would say those four areas, you'll be making good decisions. So again, to summarize, it's good training, excellent interview and assessment skills, working well on readiness for change. In other words, you've assessed them well with those, with your knowledge, you can see whether it's a personality disorder issue or a psychosis problem. Okay, so you've got that number two area done well in your assessment. Number three, you're working well on readiness for change and motivation issues with clients. And then number four, self-development, self-awareness of the therapist. And when would you suggest a client has to be rejected? I understand from what you said, it's you as a hypnotist, you are aware of your own competence and decide on your own competence is are you ready for the client or not? 
then you decide on the level of your probably also competence. Is that a client that you can work in conjunction with another therapist who is probably more suited and you help the therapy of the other therapist? And when you realize based on your experience that the client is trying to manipulate you and you can't keep the control that the client is always taking over the control and keeping it, then you also should reject the client. Well, the word reject, of course, we will refer them all is what we would say. But I know what that's what you mean. Absolutely. Well, I think you've summarized it well there through your self-awareness, your training, you're making good decisions, you're assessing well their level of problem. That's an area you may have an adjunctive role with, but not really deal with fully. That's not your scope of practice and experience and training and so on. And then working with their motivation, getting them to make a real commitment or referring them on to somebody or to just to come back when they're ready to make a serious commitment. And then being very effective in the therapeutic knowledge and applying it well and dealing with their projection issues or things that can come up with any client as you work with them. So commitment to change is key to it. Never work without it. And so don't take on people who are just going to expect you to perform a miracle. This is all playing into the hands of that worst, shall we say, the worst image of hypnotherapy that's a magic wand which will just produce results regardless of the client's commitment that doesn't teach the client to grow or become strong or teach them anything that's of great value and we know it's not how therapy really works thank you very much john unfortunately our time has already come to an end i'm very grateful for your insight for your knowledge and i'm very much looking forward to our next hypnotalks question and answer session 12 yes thank you axel i'm happy to answer questions as best i can here and um very thankful for people who listen in and send in comments as well. Again, there's a lot of great work as hypnotherapists that we do. And we want to build a good community of really well-trained therapists. And I'm delighted to participate in any way that I can. Thank you very much, John. And have a great and fantastic day. Thank you. To you too. For today. Bye for now. Goodbye for now. And to all of our listeners, if you have liked this episode, please give us a like. A friendly comment, subscribe to our channels and share this episode via email and on social media. And make sure to follow up with the next episodes. Please check out our home pages. You'll find them linked on the homepage of this podcast episode. With that said, I'm Axel Hommach, online with Dr. John Butler. Have a great time. Until next time.